to Fresh Image. Fresh Image is a nonprofit Catholic ministry committed to providing individuals and communities with resources to facilitate the full flourishing of the image of God in each and every single human person. Not only will you find hundreds of articles, convenient audios and presentations on our beautiful faith, but also catechetical resources to be used in the classroom, at the parish, and at the kitchen table. Today, we are happy to present Fresh Image Gospel Reflections from our founder, Tony Crescio. Tony reminds us that it is when we look into the mirror of Scripture that we discover the unique image of God we have each been created to be. My dear friends in Christ, last weekend we reflected upon Christ's desire to be identified with the human family. The main thrust of our discussion centered upon the church, which, as we discussed, is radically unlike any human organization. Rather, the church is an organism. It is the living body of Christ, of which we become members through the sacred waters of baptism. Accordingly, we briefly discussed how this sacrament changes our ontological position in life, such that we actually begin to be incorporated into the divine life here and now, called with the help of God's grace to enter into the dynamics of Trinitarian life, which is love itself. It was also mentioned that this week's discussion would be closely related to the concept of the fear of the Lord spoken of two weeks ago, where fear of the Lord was described as an awestruck, wondering love in response to both the absolute mysterious nature of our God and His unfailing and unwavering love for us. This week, we will focus on two central qualities of divine perfection demonstrated by the Son of God incarnate, humility and meekness. Every society has axioms, which it tosses about like proverbial trump cards, laid down in conversation so as to call the attention of one's interlocutor to an accepted tidbit of wisdom that has been handed down from generation to generation. In our society, we often hear individuals chide one another with the phrase, Try living in the real world. This nugget of knowledge is often used by parents in an all-too-often vain attempt to bring their now enlightened teenage son or daughter back down to earth and see things as they really are. However, we all know that this little verbal missile has a habit of making an appearance in casual conversations of a, let's just say, informative nature, as we share the experience of a recent encounter with one who may think quite a lot of themselves. I say all of this, one, because the statement itself has much colloquial wisdom about it, especially in a day and age where there is a constant temptation to flee reality in various ways, such as television, movies, social media, virtual reality, and video games, to name a few. If we aren't careful and spend too much time with these things, our ability not only to navigate life, but to see life for what it really is, becomes undermined over time. For what we spend our time with and give our attention to, necessarily ends up shaping how we view life. This is especially important for human creatures who have had a difficult time maintaining a realistic view of reality and ourselves from almost the very beginning, since the fall of our first parents. Secondly, I bring it up in order to point out that what people usually mean by this has very little to do with reality itself. Take for example the exchange between a parent and child where this phrase makes an appearance. What the parent likely means is that their child will one day have to learn how to provide for themselves and become a responsible, independent, and self-sustaining individual. Such a sentiment is, no doubt, a core virtue of the traditional American spirit. 
And while there is a great dignity in the ability to work hard and care for one's responsibilities, at bottom, the idea is utterly fantastical. The American dream of the self-sustaining and independent individual has always been and will forevermore remain such an element of fiction. And today even these values have become distorted, such that many talk of their lives as projects of self-creation, which is itself a denial of one's creatureliness and a claim of self-deification. Such a sentiment, in other words, reflects an understanding of life where each is one's own absolute authority, each is one's own God, and this is no exaggeration. I say this not to trample upon the country I call home, especially so soon after celebrating the birth of our nation. I love this country, and while it certainly has its flaws, I believe the principles upon which it was founded, as articulated in our founding documents, are unmatched in the history of human civilization. Nor do I mean to suggest that this is solely an American problem, though I do find it quite ingrained in our collective mentality. It is rather a problem of the fallen human creature, as already stated. We simply fail to acknowledge the basic fact that we are creatures. This is one of those beautiful principles our country was founded upon, by the way. The Declaration of Independence declares, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It was self-evident to our founders that we are creatures, is it for us today? Christianity pushes this even further in its teaching based as it is upon divine revelation and not natural law, as the country's founding documents are. Not only are we creatures, but we are creatures created in the image of God and therefore designed by the Creator to be vessels of the divine life. Consequently, Christians also believe that apart from participatory communion in the divine life, the lives we live are something less than real, less than the fullness of life we were created for. The reason we fail to recognize this is a failure of the imagination, but not of an overactive imagination, as one might assume. Instead, the source is a narrow and sluggish imagination. In what may seem a bit of irony, the virtues of humility and meekness are actually the foundation of a robust imagination. This is a reality that our readings for today make clear to us. The imagination is essential for understanding what Jesus teaches us in our gospel reading for today from the 11th chapter of Matthew's gospel. In fact, his words are carefully constructed so as to awaken the imagination of his listeners, then and now. This becomes clear when we realize that Jesus is drawing heavily upon the Old Testament in his message. Our first reading for today from the book of the prophet Zechariah provides the most obvious example. The passage ought to sound familiar to us, as we heard a portion of it quoted by Matthew in the processional gospel used on Palm Sunday, specifically the verse which reads, Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion! Shout aloud, O daughter Jerusalem! Lo, your king comes to you, triumphant and victorious is he, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Hearing the verse over again is beneficial, as it provides us with an example of the sort of imaginative malaise we suffer from. Upon hearing the verse, if you are familiar with it at all, your first assumption is probably something along the lines of, yeah, sounds like Jesus to me, makes sense. But in making such an assumption, 
The intended shock value and the sense of wonder that the evangelist is attempting to convey is immediately lost. The reason for this is that when used in its original historical context, the words of the prophet made perfect sense, as at that time, royalty would have indeed ridden on donkeys. However, by the time Jesus mounted a donkey and rode into Jerusalem, it had become a simple beast of burden, and no more, having been surpassed by the horse as the preferred vehicle of choice among the royal class. So when those who heard Matthew's gospel, telling them that this man who was entering upon a donkey was a king, and that the donkey itself provided the proof, it was the equivalent of someone telling us that the President of the United States would be arriving to town in a Volkswagen Beetle. Thus, in order to understand the significance of the event, one would have to know the passage from Zechariah. A question we should ask ourselves is, how many of us do? With this much of the story, it seems as though we have gone astray in our reflection on today's gospel. However, in order to see why this is not the case, we must take a step back and consider the wider context. The passage we hear today are verses 25 to 30 from chapter 11 of Matthew's gospel. The beginning of the chapter immediately follows the words of Jesus we heard last week concerning the welcoming of a disciple as though welcoming himself, and begins with a question posed by the disciples of John the Baptist concerning Jesus' identity. As part of his response, Jesus proclaims the greatness of John the Baptist while denouncing the worldview of the unbelievers of his and our generation, saying, But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces calling to their playmates, We piped to you, and you did not dance. We wailed, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Jesus then proceeds to upbraid the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Notice please what Jesus is saying. He is upbraiding the crowd for their faulty imagination. Theirs is an imagination which is weak, because it did not pay attention to the education they had received as a people throughout the generations, as to who God was and to who his Messiah would be. Instead, because of their narrow imagination, they neither believed the words of Christ concerning his identity, nor the works he performed, which testified to his divinity, precisely because they echoed the work of God in the Old Testament. For example, the calming of the storm as described in chapter 4 of Mark's Gospel, demonstrating control over creation, or the raising of Lazarus in the 11th chapter of John's Gospel, demonstrating control over life itself. Jesus chided the people time and again for their disbelief. Moreover, this broader context parallels exactly that of Zechariah chapter 9, our first reading for today, as there too, the first part of the chapter contains the prophet's words of judgment of the unrepentant nations. The wider context of our gospel passage for today has also brought us closer to our targeted concepts of humility and meekness. Moments ago, in his response to the disciples of John the Baptist, we heard Jesus say, Wisdom is justified by her deeds. Once again, we may be immune to the phrase, or thrown off due to the female gender pronoun used. However, Jesus is drawing upon the Jewish wisdom tradition to speak of himself as wisdom personified. For example, in chapter 8 of the book of Proverbs, we find wisdom's part in creation described. 
When he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him, like a master worker, and I was his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world, and delighting in the human race. Additionally, we find these words included in an autobiographical poem of wisdom from chapter 51 of the book of Sirach. Draw near to me, you who understand, and lodge in the house of instruction. Put your neck under her yoke, and let your souls receive instruction. See with your own eyes that I have labored but little, and found for myself much serenity. There should be little doubt that Jesus is therefore drawing and affirming this tradition when he echoes these words of wisdom in our passage for today, saying, Come to me, all you who labor and are burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and humble of heart, and you will find rest for yourselves, for my yoke is easy and my burden light. Take a moment to appreciate how extraordinary this is. Wisdom itself, who as God has always been our home, and who has been at work educating the human family throughout history, through the law and the prophets, has become incarnate. And he has done so in order to teach us that the way to our happy homeland is himself, deliberately making himself the pavement under our feet along which we could return home, as St. Augustine says in his work, Teaching Christianity. Humility and meekness are essential to making our way home, where alone we can obtain lasting happiness. The reason for this is, as we discussed last week, in order to follow Christ and live as his body, we must love rightly. And this love is lived as part of a life that he describes as taking up our cross and following him. Today, Jesus teaches us that this cross is an easy yoke and a burden to be borne with humility and meekness. How can this be the case? A closer look at the virtues of humility and meekness reveals the answer. Humility has its etymological roots in the Latin humus, meaning ground. Thus, when we are humble, we see all of reality, including ourselves, as it really is. Humility, then, enables us to love rightly. No longer do we proudly love ourselves above all else, but humbly love God, our creator and giver of life, above all else, and love all else through, with, and in Him. Meekness is perhaps less easily understood because of its infrequent use. However, St. Gregory of Nyssa describes meekness as being reasonable in order not to be disturbed so easily by passionate movements of the soul. For his part, Augustine additionally inserts under the umbrella of meekness a sort of teachable quality that allows one to learn from Scripture and, quote, not make bold to censure what appears a stumbling block to the uninstructed and become intractable by obstinate argumentation. At this point, we have found our way back to the beginning of our conversation and in the process discovered why it is that we have so much trouble living in the real world. Humility and meekness are not qualities we often hear spoken of, much less extolled as admirable. However, this is only because our imaginations can't even begin to wonder at the extraordinary beauty of the human creature as created by God. My friends, today our God calls us to imitate the humility and meekness of His only begotten Son, who though having equality with God, did not desire to possess it for Himself through pride or vanity, but instead desired that those who bore His image from the beginning might once again be made ready to be filled with the divine life. St. Gregory of Nyssa describes God as the divine artist, initially sketching out the divine image, the Imago Dei, 
upon the nature of humanity in order that this image might reflect true beauty and happiness to the world. With this image, Gregory describes an additional concept of importance previously left unnamed in our discussion thus far, known as the Kapok's Day. And it is precisely at this point which our imaginations completely fail. The Kapok's Day is nothing other than our capacity for God, our capacity to participate in the very life of God who is love, beauty, wisdom, and happiness itself. How many of us live with the idea that we are made for this in mind, I wonder? The reason we don't is that we completely lack the ability to fathom the love of our God. We don't appreciate the amazing beauty of what God created when he created the human person, a creature created for nothing less than God himself. It is thus that the Son of God humbled himself, so that the human imagination might begin once again to see its own beauty by seeing how much it is loved. Look around you. See the diversity. No life could possibly learn all there is to learn about the majesty of creation. It seems infinite. Now consider to yourself that it was all put there precisely so that God could walk with us for eternity, just as he did with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, explaining to us how every song a bird sings and every breeze the wind blows proclaims his love for creation. Our reaction is meant to be childlike, a giggle, huge smile, maybe even a shriek of joy, as the human mind comes to recognize ever more profoundly the all-pervading love of its creator, and that creation is itself one giant love letter to the human family. Today, we are called to receive it and live in it the way we were intended to, with childlike humility and meekness. This is the world as it was created to be by our creator. This is the real world. Thank you for listening to this week's Gospel Reflection. For more resources, please visit us at freshimage.org. And remember, when you live a fresh life, you will be a breath of God's fresh, life-giving air to the world.